This episode contains graphic accounts of domestic and sexual violence, violence against women in particular, and language that is not suitable for listeners 18 and under. There are also discussions of necrophilia. Please use caution when listening. My energy never vibed with his energy. There was just something about him that was dark, you know? You know how you know, but you don't know how you know. Why, have they done anything at all to that man? I mean, besides just slapping him on the wrist? Why is it hard? The, the evidence is there. If that had been a man he had done that to, they would have had him on assault and battery with it, with a tent. What's so hard about that? He's an awful man. Um, our justice system, system is a reason that women are killed every day. Men like him. Men like him that get off, repeat offenders that get off. I could walk in a Walmart and something and they give me more than what they've ever given Jim Lemon. I've looked at his record. That was Jim's old landlord, Donna. She learned firsthand what an expert manipulator Jim Lumen is, particularly when it comes to court proceedings like an eviction. Donna struggled to get Jim out of her home in 2014. When Donna leased the property to Jim, she had no idea what kind of person she was dealing with. Like so many others who have done business with Jim, she learned the hard way that he is ruthless, maniacal, and an expert manipulator. Jim's behavior in Donna's home and throughout the eviction proceedings evidence a person who is willing to use the courts and manipulate their inefficiencies to his advantage in a serial fashion. Jim grew up to be a serial entrepreneur, have serial marriages, and engage in a serial pattern of prolific abuse, often using our courts as a tool to carry out that abuse. Jim's professional and personal life are part of what make him interesting and enigmatic for the women who go on to love and then eventually leave him. He's a sort of most interesting man in the world type of character when you first meet him. Or, if you look at it from another lens, he learned about how to become a serial fraudster from his father and never looked back. Every narcissistic abuser has one thing in common, charisma and charm. To the naked eye, Jim doesn't look like anything more than just a country boy from Oklahoma even though everything he does is an attempt to set himself apart from that. With Jim, there's always something else going on. A new scheme, a new job, a new woman, a new trip. Just join him for a while on this cruise called life. But how long before you get the rug pulled out from under you and find yourself bloody in a park, not sure who to call? The answer is that horror happens bit by bit, but then also all at once. I'm Leslie Briggs. And I'm Colleen McCarty. And this is Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, Episode 3, Serial Something. If you're new to this podcast, we recommend you go back and start from Episode 1. Knowing everything that we know about Jim's upbringing, it's likely that he was already abusing his intimate partners by the time he got to high school. He was so young when he got married to Dawn that his mom, Patsy, had to sign a consent to allow him to marry her. And about seven or eight months later, after they got married, they had their first child. And they were both still teenagers. Jim's dad, of course, wasn't around for the wedding or the childbirth because he was serving his 30-year sentence in Oklahoma DOC, Department of Corrections. Jim and Don were high school sweethearts. 
Jim accompanied Dawn to one of their high school dances at the Cleveland High School, where they both went. Dawn was very active in extracurricular activities, including being voted most likely to succeed by her class. Jim and Dawn were married in November of 1991, and like I said, their only child was born in June of 1992, so we'll let you do the math on that one. We reached out, and like we said, Dawn does not want to participate in the podcast, but we do have personal accounts of two of Jim's survivors, both Kristen and Ember. If you remember from episode one, Ember told us that she distinctly remembers Dawn warning her to hide her birth control because she was worried that Jim might try to tamper with it to get her pregnant, which we know is a common tactic of abusers to put holes in condoms or take birth control pills in order to try to get their partners pregnant to tie them to them for a longer period of time. Right. And you remember he was pushing and pushing and pushing Ember to marry him back Mm -hmm. in, you know, October of 98. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's, you can see there's a pattern forming. So Ember remembered Dawn sharing her own stories of abuse from Jim with her. And she credits Dawn's openness with helping her get away from Jim after just six months together. Ember expressed such gratitude for Dawn and she wanted to thank her. So Dawn, we don't know if you're listening to this or if you will listen, but we hope you know that the impact you had on Ember was a lasting one and she's grateful. Kristen, another survivor of Jim, went to high school with Don and Jim, and she had only one memory of the time when Jim and Don were married. Been to a party one time where he was at in high school. It was at him and Don's house. And I think they just got married, so maybe they were like 17 or something like that. And they had this house. And we got word that there was a party. I can't even remember who I went there with. But like we were there 10 minutes and Jim comes out and shoots a gun off into the air and says, everybody needs to leave. And so, you know, we left. Then there's the setup of Jim's childhood home. The house was the house he grew up in. So spent a lot of time in the little house in the corner. It's, you know, probably like 800 square feet. Jim's room was, his childhood room was in, it's like a small little room off of the uh, living room. That's got these um, like half saloon door things, like no privacy. And so we're just, there's just like questions that we have about, I don't know, just the, you know, he's getting married at 16. His mother is signing a consent. I, I think we can surmise that that had a lot to do with Don being pregnant. I mean, we can just surmise from these circumstances that there was sexual activity happening in the home before he was of a quote of age and that probably his parental figures knew about it, heard it happening, did nothing to intervene. And some parents have that thought of like, I'd rather them do it where I know what's happening or whatever, but like that's just indicative of a lack of boundaries and a lack of like discipline. Yeah. I think it just, it's, it's unsettling. And there's a lot, I mean, I think prolific and unsettling are going to be words (laughs) that I overuse by the time we get to the end of this podcast, but like it's unsettling, I think. And we do know, I mean, we do have confirmed there was, there are some of his romantic partners have confirmed there was sexual activity that happened later on, not in high school, but, but these are, this is later years while Patsy's in, in the room. There's a bedroom that is the largest bedroom and it has a half wall in it. And on one side of that half wall is a bed and on the other side is a bed. 
And so Jim's on one side, Patsy's on the other. In in the in the bigger room with the yeah, I can remember uh, being in there with him whenever his uh, his mother was in the same room, like, and we were fooling around. It didn't bother him at all, and I was like, "She's gonna hear us." And he's like, "No, don't." Unusual, very strange, very unusual. Ultimately, though. The marriage to Dawn did not last. She filed her divorce in 1995, citing irreconcilable differences. And I guess just like an interesting note, it's in 1995 that the appearance of Patrick Pickerel, an attorney in Pawnee County, comes into the this story. And he represents Dawn in the divorce. And he actually goes on to become an associate judge in Pawnee County, where Cleveland is located. And in later years, he presides over some cases that involve Jim. After his divorce from Don, Jim moved to Tulsa and opened a mortgage company. It was called American Family Mortgage. Ember remembers that when she sought her protective order and needed help with service from the sheriff, the officer looked her in the eye and told her, you need to make better choices. It's fucked. Real victim-centered policing out here in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1998 this interaction might remind you of some of the police interactions that April Wilkins had during the same time with the Tulsa Police Department. She's the subject of our podcast from season one. That shit makes me so mad to think about. You need to make better choices. I can think of one person in this scenario that needs to make better choices, yep. and it's not her. Not her. In 2001, Jim married his second wife, Misty, in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Eureka Springs is one of his favorite spots. It's like one of my favorite spots. Too. I know. Like, you can't have it. <laughs> that, you cannot you can't have that. You can't have that, Jim. <laughs> it doesn't belong to you. Misty did not want to participate in the podcast, but we have reviewed court filings and give a glimpse into the end of their relationship. Misty and Jim were married for 10 years. During that time, they had two children. By 2011, Misty had filed for a protective order against Jim. In her application for protective order, Misty describes urgent fear that Jim will harm her. To the protective order, as evidence of her fear, she attaches text messages between the two of them and also a picture of Jim holding a pistol in his mouth. She describes a history of mental illness in Jim's family, which we talked about in episode two. Yeah, with Kathleen's, the PO that, that was entered against Kathleen. He's like using suicide, his potential suicide as a tool for coercive control. Like, gonna, I'm putting it on you to save my life. And if you don't, that's on you. Unfortunately, the threat of suicide by an abuser is an extremely common abusive tactic because abusers know that their victims love them and they don't want them to die. And it often is used as like a last resort to try to control the person, keep them to stay. If you leave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. And it puts that person in a state of like hypervigilance, worrying that if they are gone and that person does kill themselves, then it's their fault, which is extremely perverse and horrible way to make somebody feel. Yep. Yeah. Highly manipulative. We're going to read this text exchange. And I'll just tell you, we don't know all the bit players. There's some names in here. We don't know necessarily who everybody is. We're not going to say the names of the kids. We're going to respect their privacy. But so just ride with us through this because it's kind of a, it's, I mean, it's just gnarly. A little bit of a roller coaster. So Leslie's going to be Jim. 
And I'm going to be Misty. Okay. Kids still up? Yeah. You don't always have to text me. If you want to talk to the kids, then call them. Take my fucking kids around Noah and see what that gets you, stupid bitch. What are you talking about? They have never even met or seen him. I don't know what was talking about. Bull fucking shit. Plus, followed up with, she's met him. The guy I talk with about the mama stuff who has black hair. And met him and went to big lots with him. Total deal breaker, you stupid worthless motherfucker. Filed court papers say you cannot discuss our stuff in front of the kids. And you ignorant fuckers think my kids can be around your attorney at Big Lots and Cherry Bear? I'm having Kelly file total contempt charges on your worthless ass on every aspect I have, and you will be scheduled a day for you and your fucking attorney to explain everything from being partners with Zanati to this and all in between. You will also have to prove exactly why you should not go to jail for a minimum of 30 days on contempt to the judge. I've held off doing that to you before because you're the kid's mom, but I'm not now. I'm sending your ass. You will figure this shit out. Fuck you. That's total bullshit. They did not see him at Cherryberry. We went Cody and her son. Go to hell, Misty. You motherfuckers that somehow think you're above shit can explain it to the judge and my new co-counsel, Bernice Shedrick. You're going to jail, period. Whatever, Jimmy. I could have put you there two weeks ago and held off on it because it didn't seem right. Fuck that. I'm going back to the beginning on all counts, including the attorney being in partners with mine. Fuck you. I'm done with you. And you can fucking rot in Creek County as far as I'm concerned. Hide and watch, bitch. Hide and fucking watch. Whatever. Okay, tell the judge how you think you can just blatantly go against what is ordered whenever you like. That'll get you pretty far. I mean, you can just feel him seething because she's not doing what he wants. Because she potentially has another male around his children. Like, he's not in control, and he is in a rage. It's called legal abuse, and it's a part of the post-separation abuse cycle that is, like, extremely under-talked about, I think. If you're in a custody hearing and you're going before a judge, the judge is going to pick which parent is the most harmonious, the most easy to get along with, the most letting everybody get visitation, the most letting everybody stick to their dates and schedules and things like that. And any parent that is even seen as going against those predetermined conditions is all of a sudden the least favored parent in the custody like agreement. And so the fact that he knows this, the fact that he knows that he can use contempt, the fact that somebody can He knows somebody can go to jail for contempt and he's threatening this person with these very technical legal terms. He probably doesn't know much about the legal process can feel very intimidating and scary. I mean, it's like, well, what do I want to do? Go to jail for 30 days away from my children or do I want to just like do what this guy says? Right. Right. It's coercive control through the use of the courts. But we're going to, and this theme of like, abusing a court process to not in pursuit of any kind of justice, but to like harm his former partners. I mean, that is going to come up again and again and again throughout this podcast. And 
Jim's savvy enough to understand that courts can jail people who are held in contempt. He's manipulative enough to know how to file those applications to do that very thing. And he's abusive enough to follow through. In the chaos of his marriage to Misty, Jim seems to be struggling to find a meaningful career or, in the alternative, embarks on a series of strange get-rich-quick schemes that all go belly up. Over the course of a decade, Jim opens and operates at least five businesses. Jim's businesses range from the clever to the morbid. We found a couple of news clips about two of his failed ventures during this chaotic decade. Oh, do your school t-shirts light up? Rick Wells shows us now a local man has developed a t-shirt that does light up. It not only responds to music and clapping, but sounds like the hot new thing in fandom. Jim Lumen was in China on a buying trip for his other business. He owns a casket company. Saw this technology at a trade show. They have these actually in rugs. You know, like welcome mats. So when you're wiping your feet, the things say, well, Exactly, welcome, exactly. Welcome. Well, he bought the U.S. rights to it because he thought he had a better idea than welcome mats. We have um, about 20 college licenses already put in place. Uh-huh. We're waiting on about 25 more. The Dallas Mavericks have some. Soon the Houston Rockets will, too. They've contacted local high schools. They're just getting rolling. This just comes off by Velcro. Uh-huh. Your wires go down the shirt. A receiver fits in the built-in pocket. I think we're on to something. Yeah, me too. The only downside is also the upside. They look much better in the dark. So let's see them go. Hang up some shirts, turn on the black-eyed peas, and turn out the lights. I got that Another really good idea I didn't think of. Rick Wells, the news on six. Well, Jim Lumen thinks his T-shirts might be a good fundraiser. He says anything which can be displayed graphically can become a Lumen 8 T-shirt. We've provided a handy link to his website in the web version of Rick's story. In addition to cornering and then failing to launch the light-up T-shirt market in the United States, Jim also started a complaint hotline called Gripe at Me. It also failed miserably. There is a new website out there. It's made for you. Okay, it's called gripeatme.com. It's run by a guy out of Cleveland, Oklahoma. Take a listen to one of the calls they got. Why do we keep dumping all this money into education and more and more classes keep getting cut? Okay, their website says we are the first and only service that actually encourages your complaints and arguments. Okay, so here's the deal. You can call and they will, quote, listen, affirm, and be sympathetic to whatever you have to say. Or they'll play devil's advocate and point out the other side, depending on what you want them to do. Why would you want them to do that? I, I, <laughs> do you agree with me, right? Exactly. It's not free. Uh-huh. If you want to get it all off your chest, it's two ninety nine a minute. A minute? They also have gift cards, though, if you are tired of listening to someone else's Ooh, complaints. Ouch. Yes. So, <laughs> and they say they hear everything. They hear about divorce. They hear about losing jobs. They hear about the government. They hear about football teams. They hear about it all so i bet they hear it all my question is though isn't that what our husbands are for jim also has a degree in mortuary science and has had several businesses that are related to the end of life services industry like one of them was the cleveland funeral home that he owned with his sister kathy before she passed away in 2004 And another one is New Standard Caskets LLC, which is one where he was importing caskets from China in 2006. And another one is Serenity Caskets LLC in 2008, which was registered to a Jim Lumen. It could have been his dad. 
but probably was him. And I'm not sure if those were also caskets coming from China, but it's interesting that it's basically also a casket business that he started again only two years later with a new business entity. Yeah, and when he goes, so it's like that Luminate, the light-up T-shirts, he is like in China on a casket-buying trip when he sees this technology. I mean, this is just like, this shit is a little bit chaotic. Like, gripe at me, like, on first glance, you're like, oh, how clever, but then you're like, I don't know. People are paying $2.99 to call him and complain about their lives. That's more than Miss Cleo. <laughs> like, if I'm paying $2.99 a minute, I better be getting some A, phone sex, or B, astrological readings. <laughs> I don't know. $2.99 times 60. <laughs> that is way more than therapy. That is so much more. $179 an hour. Yeah, get a therapist. I mean, if you're complaining about your life to a stranger, <laughs> I think you should at least, at least get some At least let it be like a licensed person so who can give you coping strategies. I mean, that business fails, probably for that reason. Everybody started to realize that they could get like actual help. To me, it's like, it just looks like you're looking for a highway out of your situation. Yeah. That you don't like your life. And you're like, this thing popped into my head one day. It's it's impulsive. and It is impulsive. Chaotic. And like, he never had any intention of running any of these businesses for any, like, really long period of time. I think it's like, he's going to try something. If it makes him a ton of money in the first month, he's going to stick with it. If it doesn't make him any money, he's going to abandon it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like... <laughs> It's, like, fun to imagine and dream and do stuff like that. But at right. the same time, like, it takes a lot of know-how and business acumen and investment capital yeah. to actually do anything like that, what he's talking about doing. And also, it's really easy to pick up women when you say, I'm starting a company. I have angel investors looking at this. I have this going on. D- dude, I need. I we need to talk about that because he's a self described entrepreneur and every single time I've met a guy who is a self-described entrepreneur they've turned out to be well unpleasant to say the least to be around they're a fraud they're deceptive I mean are you an entrepreneur are you a con artist man it's such a fine line it is a fine line I don't know red flags for me somebody says they're an entrepreneur just fucking run I think yes yes for sure So interestingly, though, his work at the funeral home led to unsettling conversations with several of his romantic partners. But he used to tell me he would do sick stuff with the dead people. Like what? Like have sex with the dead people. He told you he would? He did. He was just like, he said he was embalming a body or doing something with this dead body. And he goes, oh, I wonder what it would be like to do a dead person. Would you just say it to get a rise out of somebody to see what they would say, or would you say it because you really did it? That was Tisha. Tisha is one of Jim's ex-girlfriends from Iowa. Interestingly enough, though, Tisha reported that Jim never physically abused her. He did, however, share some obviously very scary thoughts and claimed to have had sex with one of the bodies he was embalming in his funeral home business. Here's Heather on that topic as well. He'd make comments about like when he was a mortician, that if he wanted to be super sweet, he would tie a bow to a dead man's penis 
before he buried him or it was always so important to him that I understood that he would never have sex with a body, never have sex with a dead body, that he wouldn't do that. And I always thought that was odd because I'm like, why would you, why would you even bring that up? And then in talking to Kristen and Kara, I'm like, oh, I see why you would bring that up because you've already told people you have. I mean, I don't know what to make of that. Do you think you fucked a dead body? God, I do not ever want to think about that in my life ever again. So me trying to figure it out is just more me thinking about it. Compartmentalizing. <laughs> just closing the curtain. <laughs> We're not going to. There's no need for further explanation. You guys heard the clips. Yeah, make yeah, write make us your, write us and let us know. Make your own judgments. Jesus. So 2001 to 2011 is a really wild ride for Jim's professional life as we've seen, but his personal life seems no less chaotic in the years immediately following. Misty's divorce from Jim is finalized in 2013. Anyone who has been through a divorce, especially one with small children, can tell you it's really never over. What's wild about the the timeline here is that again we're seeing like a serial marriage situation take off because the marriage between Misty and Jim is over as of August of 2013 that's when the decree is entered and before a full year even passes he's going to marry and divorce another woman her name is Amber and he's like a family law nightmare but also a pathway to a vacation home you know what I mean <laughs> like we all have those clients and like yeah. I don't know. So there's like this whirlwind summer. There's this whirlwind year, basically, of the summer of 2013 to the summer of 2014. And in that year, Amber, his third wife now, she files two different protective orders and she makes two different police reports about Jim's domestic violence. And these are, I mean, let's just like set the tone here because we've been joking around, but like you're about to hear some really horrific stories of domestic violence. Let me just say quickly that we tried very hard to track Amber down, but as of this recording, we have not yet been able to reach her. So we have to rely on her court documents alone. In May of 2014, this is what Amber reports in her application for a protective order. So this protective order was filed on May 19th of 2014 by Amber, Jim's third wife, and it was against Jim Lumen. And again, it's very upsetting. So take breaks if you need to while you're listening. I think it is important, though, to hear exactly what he did to her because, I mean, this is like, this is psychotic. Yeah, these are very scary things. Okay, so remember when you file a protective order, you, the person who is filing, have to write out exactly why and what happened to you to require being protected by the law from this person that you're filing against. On the evening of May 13th, we got into an argument that led to him pulling my hair, throwing a heavy box at me, hitting me and throwing me into the floor and on the bed. He held his hand over my face, smashing my mouth and suffocating me, putting a split in my lip After choking me and holding me down, he finally let me up, cleaned the blood from my face and the pillowcase and the bed. He then got on the phone, and when he disappeared to the other room with the door closed, I grabbed a bag and clothes and ran to my car, leaving for approximately two hours. He and his mom both called my cell phone. I didn't answer his calls, but his mom said I should just stay in a hotel and not go home. 
I sent him a text message saying I wanted to come home and just go to bed. We haven't argued in a long time, and I thought he had time to cool off. When I got home, something was in front of the door, so I pushed hard and pulled at the bottom of the hinge to get inside. He came running across the living room, grabbed me by my face and throat, calling me names, telling me not to come home. He threw me down in the living room floor by my hair, kicked me, jumped onto me, spit on me. The spitting. (sighs) I fucking hate that. I hate that too. Choking me, drug me by my hair into the kitchen, kicked me, and told me to go to our room. He threw me across the bed. I slid off the other side into some boxes and furniture. He jumped on top of me, crushing the air out of me and hitting me in the head several times. He stayed on top of me, holding me down with force until I urinated on myself. God damn, dude. (sighs) That's fucked. He went to the bathroom and was smoking a cigarette, and I told him I couldn't breathe, and I asked for help, and he told me to lay there and bleed out. Then he pulled me onto the bed where he poked his finger into my right eye, choked me, and hit me in the head. After he calmed down for a moment, I went to the bathroom, and I came back out, and he told me to stop crying, and he threw the remote control at me, hitting me in the forehead. Then he made me go back to the bathroom. He made me douche and cleaned from under my fingernails. He used bleach to clean the bathroom and proceeded to tell me how he was going to kill me. He lifted my shirt and bra and pulled down my shorts looking for bruises. He told me he was going to shoot me to cover up the bruises and explained how explained how he could cover up anything that would be identified in an autopsy. Then he made me lay across our bed and told me he had two guns under his left hip and was waiting for me to go to sleep. He said he had a gun from someone that it wasn't registered to him and that had a silencer on it. He went to my car and brought in all the things that I had taken out there and he laid next to me drinking beer and watching TV. He told me to set the alarm on his cell phone so I could go to work the next day. And that if he ever heard me tell anyone about anything, he would kill me. When the alarm went off, I ran to the car and left while he slept. Can we talk about how fucking casually he's just drinking beer and watching TV after brutalizing her? The parts that bother me the most, as somebody who hears these stories all the time, is the cleaning out from under the fingernails and examining the body for the bruises. The casually going back to whatever he was doing, like watching TV and drinking beer and just talking casually about killing her while she's laying there in complete terror. The part about lay there and bleed out, like all those things are so bad. And he has this, he is like a funeral home director. He knows what a dead body looks like in certain conditions. The part about I could cover anything up in an autopsy. I would make it so it would never show in an autopsy. He's talking about shooting her through the bruises, Leslie, that he's caused so so that it doesn't look like it was a battery. So that it was just a fucking shooting? Yes. God. Like, that's how important it is to him for it to not be a fucking... Was a shooting? I'm assuming he would make it look like she did it to herself. Is like the implication. God. And the thing is, is she makes a police report 
she, she, the police report doesn't come, unfortunately, until almost a year later. And oh, no. A year later? Yeah. So she makes the police report in April of 2015. After filing the second protective order, and she reports a violation of that second protective order, but the police tell her, we haven't served him yet, so there can't be a violation, even though you have the protective order. He hasn't been served, so no violation. Because he was, like, texting her and contacting her. And it's like, no criminal charges result from that. I mean, that is a fucking, that shit is horrifying. Like, to live, to survive that, to survive, I mean, to, to survive that. Just like, yeah. what, it takes a lot to survive that. To go and ask the court for a protective order to have many people at the court in your tiny county read what happened to you and to still have no law enforcement involvement until a year later. Like, they should have been going to her house and checking on her and after that's reading my, that. That's my thing is like, okay, that protective order gets entered. And like, is anybody providing this woman with services to say, this? we need a police report, we need police action in real time? Because she's put, she's filing a protective order in real time, but she doesn't file the police report until later. Right. And of course, that makes it hard. It makes it hard practical realities of like investigating a crime that's now a year old you lose evidence and the i mean you have to say it it calls your credibility into question i mean i don't i definitely believe what happened to her because of the protective order being filed that week but when you wait a year and file a police report it's like okay well now you're ready to talk about like charges being brought for what happened to you that just doesn't like in a logical person's brain and we've talked about this ad nauseum that survivors don't act logically but in a logical law enforcement person's brain they're like that is yeah problematic like, like we, we can't trust that why are you just reporting it now three months after that incident that colleen just read she's di- she's divorced from him but you know she's not out of his orbit because we know survivors leave and we know that they come back and we know that this is cyclical and we know that abusers are very adept at drawing people back in. I mean, the emotional connection, they're the best in the world at manipulating that. And so she is not done with Jim. And that leads to another protective order the following year. It's an incident that occurs in Bethany, Missouri. And according to the application that was filed by Amber, it occurs in front of Jim's daughters. So here's what she has to say in the March 2015 protective order application. I have suffered physical abuse from Jimmy for two years off and on. He has promised to get help and stop abusing. He becomes violent and hostile, repeatedly lashing out. On March 14th of 2015, we were in a hotel in Bethany, Missouri, with his two young daughters present. He began to drag me, pull my hair, choke me, and bang my head against the door called me vulgar names, cussed me, ordered me to the bathroom, and told me that I was traumatizing the girls because I wouldn't mind him. Once he had me in the bathroom, he proceeded to hold me by my hair, throw me down on the floor, ripped at my ears, and bit my face. He spit on me and told me that he would gouge my eyes out if he had to tell me twice to do what he says. My foot was injured from him stepping on me and he pulled out hands full of hair. He told me to clean my face and fix my hair before I left the bathroom and was in front of his daughters. A few minutes later, 
there were two police officers at the door. Jimmy was confrontational and wouldn't let them in the room. One of them asked me to come out, and I did. I told him we had a fight, but that everything was okay now. I was afraid to have Jimmy arrested in front of the girls. The officer told me that they received a call that the kids were screaming for help and someone was being beat up. I said I was okay and they left. I don't know why this is affecting me so much. I think it's because the kids were there. Yeah. Two days later, I removed all of his personal belongings to a storage building, changed the locks at my house, and sent Jimmy a letter of eviction at his mom's, asking that he no longer come to my home. I'm afraid that he will come after me or my daughter. He has threatened her in revenge for my previous PO, which he says cost him custody of his daughters in 2014. My children and I are very scared of him. He is scary and violent and seems to have some type of issue with anger and controlling his temper. He is also suicidal a large portion of the time. I'm terrified he will kill me or possibly my kids before he hurts himself. He has said that if he has nothing left to lose, he will take us all with him. I request that he be monitored if possible and he be ordered to get help if possible. I also will call Sepulpa PD and request that an officer check up at my residence daily. Yikes. Jesus. I mean, we don't have to diagnose that. God, I'm so disturbed by that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's terrifying. I didn't know that. I mean, I did vaguely remember, though, that there was an incident in front of the girls yeah. with Amber. Because I remember someone telling us that they still talked about it even years later. Heather. Yeah. Yeah. There was one time that I was helping the girls put their clothes away and stuff. And the oldest daughter, she, we were talking about Amber. And because all I got was that she was just this bitch and stuff. And so I was kind of bad mouthing her and was like, yeah, but dad was always mean to her. So after that protective order, again, Amber tries to report a violation, but the police tell her they hadn't served him yet. And that was several weeks later that the police still had not served him. And a few weeks after that, she reports kind of the entire abuse that she suffered over the last two or so years. And it's funny, in the report, the only thing that the police, the investigation that is conducted, according to this report, is the police call Jim, and they're like, did you do this? And he's like, call my lawyer. And they're like, okay, I'll send it to the DA. And then no charges ever come of it. There's nothing ever filed. That's what he, I guess I should say that is what the police officer was asking if Jim would talk to him. Oh, will you come and talk to me? And he just lawyered up. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I do believe in the right to the Sixth Amendment. Yeah, like, that's fine. You know what I mean? But, like, are there's no follow-up. Did they go out and take any pictures? Did they try to get medical records from Amber? Did they ask her for evidence, text messages? I mean, did they investigate? The PO on its own and the previous PO are more evidence than most domestic violence cases have. They're already there. They didn't even have to do anything. We have to back up, though, because... In April 2014, about a month before Amber files the first protective order that you heard a little bit ago, Misty files a notice of relocation in her divorce case with Jim. She's remarried and she's moving to Iowa with their children. And this kicks off a new round of legal battles between Jim and Misty. 
You don't even have to read the pleadings to know. It's getting uglier and uglier. Jim loses custody and is only allowed supervised visitation in April 2015, right as Amber is reporting Jim to the Sepulpa police. As she mentioned in that second PO, it does look like the PO was used to terminate his custody. She does get called to testify. She gets subpoenaed in the custody ca- in the custody battle. In July of that year, Jim gets unsupervised visits of his kids back, but the court orders Jim not to bring the children around his romantic partners. Misty is allowed to relocate to Iowa, and Jim is allowed unsupervised visits there. So he starts kind of his slow migration from Oklahoma to Iowa. Yeah. And then there's like an, there's a final order for the custody in August of 2015, right? Yes. In August 2015, the court grants custody to Misty and orders visitation for Jim. In addition to allowing Jim regular visitation schedule, the court makes the following orders. One, reiterates no girlfriends or romantic partners to be around the children. Two, no alcohol or drug consumption around the children or immediately prior to visitation. Three, no texting or videoing while driving with minor children. Four, Jim is ordered to attend therapy per the recommendation of Dr. Stockley. Specifically, the therapy must include domestic violence issues as it pertains to exposure to children. Five, Misty is ordered to continue counseling for herself. Six, Jim cannot bring the children around anyone with whom he is involved in other litigation. We'll talk about that in a second. Seven, Jim also had to submit to alcohol assessment and follow the recommendations. Some of the things that come out in the custody battle are disturbing, particularly because they are alleged to have happened at least partly in front of Misty and Jim's children. So there's a piece of the pleading here that we have pulled that says. Yeah, this is actually from Misty's affidavit. Oh, really? So her, her sworn testimony here. Okay, so this is sworn under oath. Misty says, among the statements made, respondent, which is Jim, said in the presence of the minor children that he, quote, would love to point it, the weapon he was holding, at mom's head and blow pink mist all over the wall. Oh, <sighs> fucking Christ. In front of the kids. They're like, not, not even in front of them. Are you just like saying that to them? Who else is there? Yeah, he says mom's head to them. What the fuck? Second thing it says, on January 3rd, 2011, Misty claimed that other women had in fact moved into the marital home while she was picking up some personal items. And on the same day, Jim threw a car seat at her in front of the kids. So I just would like to take this moment to point out that there is a totally separate felony for domestic violence in the presence of minor children in Oklahoma. That's right. Separate from just domestic just violence. Just regular domestic regular violence. Regular domestic violence. Why, again... Actually, it's a misdemeanor, Leslie. All the domestic violence first offenses are misdemeanors, except for with a deadly weapon or a pattern of prior domestic abuse. Oh. Oh. If only somebody would bring a charge to establish a fucking pattern here. Wow. Like, what the fuck? Also, what the fuck? Where also, are the police? Can I also say that prior pattern of domestic abuse, which serves up to 10 years in Oklahoma, does not require previous criminal trials to have occurred, only previous evidence of abuse, like oh. medical records or, I don't know, affidavits? Oh. Huh. It's good to know. 
for any DAs who may or may not listen to this podcast. I don't know if any of DAs do. I'm in the fetal position. Colleen has gone fetal. <laughs> I mean, that's that shit is fucking disturbing, dude. And like, we have to also just like er, record stop again. So like, we pivoted from Amber to back to Misty, and we're gonna pivot a third time in this episode to Kristen. You guys remember Kristen? We've mentioned her in previous episodes. So Kristen and Jim also strike up a romantic relationship in July of 2013, like a month before the divorce is finalized with Misty. And we also know that he married Amber shortly after, so he's juggling three different women all at once. We don't know exactly what the crossover is, but we do know that there's crossover between Kristen and Amber. But if you think about it, he's always probably got three of us. He talks about the triangulation. So he used to tell me all the time, I got a girl in Oklahoma, you're my Iowa girl, don't worry about it. There'll be a Missouri girl, you know, don't worry about it. Well, in my instance, there was me, there was Sarah, and Amber's still in the picture. Amber's always in the picture. That was Heather. Here's Kara describing the first time she ever spoke with Kristen, when they were both dating Jim Lumen. First conversation I ever had with his girlfriend, Kristen, I, I, I had been on a first date with him, um, and we got back from our first date, and his girlfriend at the time, which I did not know he, she existed, I just found out that he had a girlfriend. Um, well, she was saying that she was his girlfriend, and she was asking me about my pumpkins, and um, and she said, well, my boyfriend, Jimmy, um, likes your pumpkins. And I was like, uh, he's my boyfriend, lady, and she's like, well, I'm going to block you. And then we stopped being friends for a while. And then... He explained her away. He said she wasn't his girlfriend. He, she was obsessed with him. You know, like he says, everyone's obsessed with him. Um, but he did say that you would like Kristen. You and Kristen would get along. And, and I'll, never, I'll never forget him saying that. And I'm like, I'm not going to get along with her. You know, I'm not going to get along with your girlfriend. But by the time the court enters the order in 2015, not to bring the children around anyone involved in litigation with Jim, Kristen had sued Jim and his mother for civil battery, and he was involved in litigation with Donna Walking Stick, who was evicting him at the time. He politely to leave, and he basically told me F off, so I went and got an attorney, and that's when I filed the eviction. You couldn't deal with him. There was no dealing with him. None. He did uh, so much damage to my home. Tore it up. Yeah, I had a real nice uh, built-in oven in the wall. He took a ball bat and busted the glass all out of it. Um, he stole the back patio furniture. I had a, a birdhouse on a stand. He um, took a ball bat to that, put holes in my walls. He's a smooth talker at first. And boy, uh, when his ugly comes out, it comes out in full force. 2014 and 2015 are fully chaotic times. Jim's violence is becoming more prolific and more unhinged, and he's seeing almost no accountability. I mean, you get the court order for custody, but he gets visitation. The only reason custody is, I mean, she's getting custody to move them to Iowa. You know what I mean? Can we just talk about how honestly chaotic and crazy it is for the court to, in the same order, 
say, yes, you get visitation. And secondly, you also need to go to therapy that specifically addresses domestic violence in front of children. Like, it's not like the court doesn't know. Right. Like, he's still in it. The visitation is unsupervised. Like, it's not even a supervised visitation at that point. I guess we all agree that he doesn't beat the kids, just the women. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Which would, which in the court's mind makes this all fine. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just like, why? You you ordered supervised visitation when this whole thing kicked off. Then you undid that a few months later. And now he's got regular visitation, no supervision. But you have all these other extraneous orders because you know domestic violence is a problem for this guy. But let's go send him off to Iowa in a state where he has no resources with his children unsupervised. Bye. See ya. I don't know. And so, like, but Kristen is part of this story And the reason I'm mentioning her in this episode, in this moment, is because Jim, in the midst of this custody battle, is engaging in further violent behavior with not romantic partners. And he leaves this this voicemail for Kristen one night. I'm not okay. I broke it all. This how it ends. I am not okay. I broke it all and I beat the hell out of Leroy in the fucking parking lot. And my right hand is fucking mush. And this is how it fucking ends. This is how it fucking ends. That pitch wins. So what's he saying, Leslie? I mean, what I hear in that voicemail is I I fucked it all up, smashed Leroy's face in in the parking lot. His hand is mush. And this is how it fucking ends. That bitch wins. That's what I hear. (sighs) So it sounds like he's doing another suicidal thing. This is how it ends. This is how it ends. Yeah. Or like, I mean, what came to my head was that he's like, he got drunk. He beat the shit out of Leroy. And then he's like, now I'm going to get in trouble for this, except he never does. (laughs) Now I'm going to get in trouble for this, and it's going to affect my custody case. And that bitch is going to win my kids. Because I'm such an idiot that I beat up some guy in the parking lot, and people are going to know I'm a violent idiot. Yep. It's her fault. And you're crying. It's all her fault that I beat up this guy. You're crying for yourself, you asshole. Yeah, and he leaves that voicemail for Kristen. Yeah. Wow, what a winner. What a fucking winner. I mean, this guy. Yikes. Okay, so he's bottoming out. I think arguably this is one of the points, and this is another one of the turning points or like focal points in the story. Yeah. That causes his violence to escalate pretty extremely. He's losing his kids. I do think from all the evidence that we have seen, he does care a lot about his children and about being a father. Yeah. Like most people do. It's a very primal connection to your children and you don't want to lose them and you don't want to lose the ability to see them. Even if you've done stupid shit and hurt people. And so when he actually does lose the right to visit them unsupervised, he becomes like this chaotic monster. Yeah, and, you know, we're going to talk about the kind of immediate years after this, like between, so this is like 2014, 2015, 
he bottoms out, but then he like kind of finds his footing professionally Mm. in some ways. Yes. After a long quest, a long quest to find himself, he finally does find a profession where he can have a soft landing. Tell us about it, Colleen. What's he, what does he do in 2017? I wonder if it's going to surprise any of our listeners that Jim Lumen ends up becoming a consultant in personal injury cases working for lawyers. No, he was not an employee. He was an individual contractor. Oh, okay. Independent contractor. Okay. So, we, we, yeah, we did indeed work together. That was Josh Kidd. He worked very closely with Jim and used Jim's quote, consulting businesses in his own practice. What led to your, your like, fault? Like, did you have a falling out with Jim or did you guys just part ways or was it, was there some incident or how did that work out? Yeah. I mean, looking back, I remember, I, I think I just caught him lying. He was lying about stuff, about money flow, about uh, advertising and stuff. Mm, yeah. He was lying about that and trying to get more money. Um, as an independent contractor. And so when I caught that, I, in, I just was like, we're done. And it was that, it was that simple. And I don't know what's, I, in fact, you, you surprised me when you say that it's actually still going on. It's hilarious to me. But yeah, they're still running the, the PI associates. As far as I can tell, it's still in business. Probably. But... Yeah. He's, yeah, that's a mess. I, I don't know. But yeah. That's for legal authorities to deal with. I'm surprised I haven't really dealt with them yet. But. Yeah, I mean, do you think is is there a world where Jim is out there representing himself to be an attorney? No, that never happened. It's funny because his voicemail when I call, I tried to call him today because we were supposed to speak this week. His voicemail <laughs> says something to the effect of like, "I'm with clients" or "I'm in court," and it just, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's lots of things that could that could mean, but I, you know, it sounds to me I like think, a lawyer. <laughs> I think Jim tries to do everything he can technically t- to represent himself as a legal helper, mm-hmm. uh, but he just doesn't, he doesn't fire the, the gun and say, I'm a lawyer. There is a cottage industry of people that work out there that are consultants for legal services. They are not providing legal services themselves, but they are consulting with legal services and other types of experts. And it's like, it's a cash, it is a cash cow Mm -hmm. doing personal injury work. And so he opens this business. I mean, technically it's registered to his son, but he lists himself as the CEO on LinkedIn. This is his sixth venture. Look, try, try again, folks, because (laughs) he finally kind of figures it out. Yeah, he figures it out eventually. I mean, at least by all accounts, there's sort of this like these years of milk and honey that he kind of enters mm-hmm. in 2017. And and it's through PI Associates. I thought it was 2015. Well, I don't know. The business is registered in 2017. Oh, okay. But I, so I don't know what, I really don't know career-wise what he was okay. doing 15 to 16. So essentially, if you're looking at it linearly, somebody gets an injury, they come to a lawyer, they say, I can make some money. I deserve some money for my injury. The lawyer then takes the case, goes to Jim and says, can you investigate this? And can you go to find the chiropractor that this person can go to? I don't know. Like this, I have qualms about this because when you go to that website, PI Associates, and you click, you see the attorneys that are listed and you like go to contact the attorney, it 
every single one of those contact buttons goes to Jim at PIassistance.com. PI PI Associates. So the company's PI PI Assistance. The company's PI Associates, but the website is PI Assistance. Gets a little confusing. Hmm. But like every single one, like you're not able to contact the attorney through that website. You're contacting Jim. But like, I'll say this also, lots of law firms have like non-lawyers who navigate the pre-litigation stuff under the supervision though of a licensed attorney. Like they're not, they're sending out letters that an attorney has reviewed and approved. But Jim is, he's found his niche in this personal injury firm. And so that is where he like stakes his claim. This has been kind of a roving journey through a lot of the different pieces of this story so that you can have the background and the texture as we go into the more up close and personal experiences that happen through the rest of this podcast. But Jim goes on to have two more marriages to Heather and Marcy in Iowa. And he was divorced most recently in October 2022 from his last known wife, Marcy. Each of these women has their own harrowing tale of escaping his abuse, and we hear their stories in detail throughout this podcast. As Jim's gotten older, his patterns have become more prolific and more harmful. Multiple marriages, numerous businesses, some more forthright than others, and more than a dozen victims, almost no jail time. You have to start asking yourself, what will it take for our system of district attorneys in the state of Oklahoma who pride themselves in protecting victims to actually pursue an investigation and criminal prosecution of such a prolific abuser. On the next episode of Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, we'll begin to pull apart Jim Lumen's abusive tactics, starting with how he woos his victims and how he lures so many women into relationships that end in tragedy. You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org.